0: Drill down just a little bit where we left off last Sunday night. We're looking at the series out of Ephesians chapter 2 on We Are His Workmanship. Tonight I believe is part 6 as we're going to take just a little bit of time and uh, just delve into the subject that we dropped off with last week. For the sake of time, I can't recap all the previous messages, but we are at, I think, Roman numeral 4 looking at the performing. Now, our text out of Ephesians chapter number uh, two is uh, just to remind you of our text and where we're coming from with this thought is Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And we have been really just looking in detail at this idea of the fact that God is working on us. We are his workmanship. We are uh, a work in progress and that God is, uh, is slowly but surely having his will and way working in our life. And it's uh, important that we learn to yield. But we just look at this whole idea and all the things that surround it. And I, I'm fascinated with, uh, with craftsmen. I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by people that can paint. I was down in the little market. Uh, I was swung by the market on the way to the airport yesterday down in Aruba as we were closing out the missions trip, I said, "I just find me somewhere where I can pick up a few little things. I always like to put a little something in my office uh, as a little reminder of some of these countries I've been to. I've actually been to quite a few countries and forgot to and get home and realize I didn't even get a souvenir or anything. But uh, I, I said, I've got uh, something I want. Specifically, there was a little painting, a little painting of it, just an ocean scene there painted by one of the natural, uh, I mean, the, one of the national artists. And, and I said, I, I want that. And I, I got one little painting and put it in my office. And there was a little, a little sea turtle that was hand-carved. I'm fascinated by that. When I see that, I'm intrigued by the talent, the skill, and the dedication that it takes to go into these things. And, and I've used all these illustrations before in the previous messages. But the truth of the matter is God's working on us. We are the product tonight of what God has done in us and through us since we got saved. And some people are further along simply because they're, they're yielding and they're submissive. And uh, it's a lot easier to work with clay than it is with stone and granite. Uh, God can. If he wants to, he'll get out the hammer and the chisel and he'll knock the rough edges off of us. But uh, I like that analogy of that potter and that clay just being soft and that potter just squeezing and pulling and pushing. And, and, and what's in his mind is transformed in that clay and we become a vessel uh, and that's, that's the, the picture that we're going with in this series that God's working on us. And we've talked about all the different things, but we, we left off last week with the performing of this, this work. And Philippians chapter one, verse six says, being confident of this very thing that he, which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When you got saved, that's when God started When you got saved, the moment that you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you were born into the family of God. You were birthed in the family of God. You became a child of God. The Holy Spirit of God came and indwelled you. And it was at that point that God began shaping and molding you into, as we know, his ultimate goal is the image of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at the performing, and we we dealt with several things that God uses, tools in his toolbox that he will use to bring about His work, and the first one we looked at last Sunday night was the pressures of suffering. How that God will use suffering, He will use the the discomfort, He will use those times going through those valleys, going through those trials, going through those difficult times. That is part of God's process in order to perform the work in our life. And we talked about Job. He said, "Uh, "I knoweth the way. uh, He knoweth the way that I take, and when He hath tried me." I shall come forth as gold. We see that part of the process and part of God performing that work involves uh, suffering. Then secondly, we've talked about the preparation of solitude, how that God will use loneliness. He will use isolation. He will use times when you're all alone to work in you and with you and through you. And those times are not fun for some people. Some people are more loners than others. Some people like to be surrounded by people, like to be front and center, involved in a lot of things. But when you go back and you read your Bible, many of the men that God used in a great way had to go through those trials of loneliness and go through solitude. We talked about Noah walking with God when no one else in his generation was doing that. That's the one God handpicked to build that ark for the saving of his household. All the animals. talked about Joseph enduring the abandonment and slavery, uh, in all the years in prison, God used him, used that time in him to build him and cultivate in him a man that He would eventually use to save the world through those uh, those times of famine and plagues. Talked about Moses spent forty years on the backside of the wilderness, watching after the sheep, and God came to him in that burning bush. It was during that time that God tempered him, God changed him. God molded and made him a man that went from being a hothead, we can assume, and killed a man with his bare hands and buried him in the sand. The Bible then later tells us that Moses was the meekest man that ever lived. Only God could do that, and that happened during a time of solitude. Paul, as we talked about, spent years in prison. God used him to write some powerful epistles in those places of solitude, those places of loneliness and isolation. John, exiled to the Isle of Patmos when we get the book of Revelation. It was given to a man that was out there all by himself. Had nobody around him, no support group. Didn't have a pastor, didn't have a church, didn't have friends and family. It was just him and God. God gave him the book of Revelation during that time of solitude. That's where we left off last week. But what I'd like to do tonight is drill down a little bit more on this idea of the solitude. God wants to do things and prepare us, and He will prepare us in times of solitude, times of loneliness, times of isolation. Or as I say it this way, He does it behind the scenes when nobody can see God's work and God's shape and God's molding. That idea fascinated me. I've experienced some of that in my life. I've experienced that. I was talking with some of our uh, church members after church Sunday night. We got talking about uh, being, being uh, lonely. About many times you go to the family reunion, you're the only one there. It's a Christian. You're the only one there trying to live for God. You're the only one trying to serve God. There's people whose spouse is not saved and that, that marriage is just... It is. It is it, it, when it comes to spiritual things it's very lonely there's no one there that shares your faith shares your walk with God shares your desire to have a Christ centered home and it's, it's lonely we got young people whose parents are not saved I've known growing up young people parents were not saved or either they were saved or they were just very nominal they were not dedicated not sold out just cold and indifferent going through the motions and the young person really wanted to be on fire for God and they'd go home and it was hard They were the only one there that really had a passion, had a desire to be used of God. So many people have experienced the isolation. Of course, we could go from one uh, illustration to the other. We just gave some of of couples where the spouse is not saved or single-parent homes where there is no other spouse, no one to help bear that burden, no one there to pray with, no one to help live for God with. And you go through that, and it's difficult sometimes. And then you've got missionaries like the one we were just visiting down in Aruba. And uh, we were talking about it across the table. And I told him, I said, the difference in being a missionary on a foreign field, and a lot of people in the United States, I said, in the States, a lot of preachers look for reasons not to fellowship with one another. When you're a missionary on the foreign field, you look for reasons to fellowship with somebody. And uh, you just get so lonely. You get uh, just hungry for fellowship, hungry for somebody to sit down and talk to. And even if they've got some areas that are not right, you're just so hungry. And, of course, we had a great time fellowshipping with Brother Shields and his wife and brother leaders there today preaching four times today. He'll be flying back home tomorrow. But the point I want to make is this. God will use those times of loneliness and isolation and times that we don't like it, we don't enjoy it. He'll use that to prepare you and to continue working in you. I know kids that go to public school. I'm glad we've got a Christian school here. I'm grateful for our school. I'm glad our kids have a Christian school to go to. But if you've ever gone to a a public school as a Christian, young person wanting to live for God and serve God, you know a little bit about loneliness. You know a little bit about solitude. You know a little bit about being laughed at and made fun of because you love the Lord and you want to try to live right, live clean. Uh, You know what that's like. Uh, but I want, if I can tonight, just to drill down a little bit, and I want you to turn with me to First Samuel chapter sixteen. I gave several uh, illustra- illustrations and examples a few minutes ago. Some great people of God down through the Bible that He used to build in solitude and in isolation, but. I want to just look at one example tonight, and that is David. David is one of my favorite Bible characters. I've got a lot in common with David. When I read his life, I read his story. Seems like I can relate to him on a lot of different things. But one of the greatest men in the Bible learned some tremendous lessons in times of solitude and obscurity. God used that time to build him and to prepare him for a great work. And In 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, we find his name mentioned for the first time in verse number 13. Uh, I really never noticed this before. It may or may not be significant, but his name is not mentioned until verse 13. When Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And I, I, when, I, when I was looking it up, I just typed in David. I wanted to see when it was first mentioned and it was in this verse and I thought, well, that didn't make sense. I know he's mentioned before that and he's not mentioned by name before that. As a matter of fact, when the man of God said, are these all your sons? The Bible says that Jesse said, well, my youngest is still out in the field. Didn't even call him by his name. I think he experienced a little bit of isolation and obscurity even then. But the Bible tells us in verse number 13 that Samuel anointed him with oil. And the Bible's clear. The spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And nobody, nobody around him thought he was anybody, but God did. And something, something happened. And we don't really know. We can conjecture. We can guess. Something happened between verse 13 and verse number 18. The only thing that I can conclude is that God began doing a work in David. If he hadn't been doing it already, which he probably had been, but without a doubt, God began doing a work in David in verse number 13. You get to verse number 18, and Saul, you know, he's got this evil spirit troubling him. And one of his servants said to him in verse 18, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, There's not even named there, That is cunning and playing and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters and a comely person and the Lord is with him. And I thought when I read verse number 18 that David is pretty much up to this point has been in obscurity. I mean when I say obscurity, I mean he's so much in obscurity that when the man of God showed up at his daddy's house and said I'm going to know one of your boys king. They didn't even bother to go get him. They just left him down there. I mean, he's down there tending the sheep. He's down there on the backside of that pasture watching his father's sheep. And nobody knows he's there. But the Spirit of God came upon him. And God began a work in David in verse number 13. Obviously, it's apparent that he did. Because by the time you get down to verse number 18... You see the servant describing David and you almost think he's talking about somebody else. If he wasn't called the son of Beth, the Bethlehemite, the son of, uh, of Jesse, you would have to think he's talking about somebody else. What happened between verse 13 and verse 18? Well, I believe God did a work in him. He had to have. There's no other way that he could be described in these words in verse number 18 if God had not been preparing him in his time of solitude. Sometimes being by yourself. Is not as bad as it seems. Sometimes being the only one. Standing for God. Is not as bad as it sounds. I'm thinking about. When I was a young person. On the mission field. I was sharing this with Brother Brian. And some of the others. After church last Sunday night. I enjoyed talking to y'all about that. That helped me. Because I don't think about it. I don't sit around and think about it. I don't go to seed on things like this. But I grew up on the mission field in the 80s from the time I was about 12 to the time I was about 17. And we didn't have a youth group. And I never have really thought about it until we were talking the other night. And until I was working on this message, and it occurred to me that all those years we were missionaries in Samoa, and those years my parents were missionaries in Hawaii, we didn't have any other teenagers in the church. None. And I sat on the front row with my tie on and my Bible in my lap, and I was the only young person in the whole church. I didn't have nobody to play with, I didn't have nobody to go to church with. And we homeschooled, so there's that. And to make matters worse, my twin sister, she was just a rebel. Just a rebel. Got in trouble every day of her life. Had no relationship with God. She wasn't saved. I didn't even have a sister. I grew up, Brother Matt, I grew up, I mean, it was just me and God, my mom and daddy, that was it. Everybody in our church was all older than me. And I'd go outside to play, and when we were living in Hawaii, we had a park behind our house, and I'd take my basketball out there and go to the basketball court start playing. A bunch of guys would show up, they were all older than me. They want to play basketball. They'd say, we're going to play shirts and skins. And they'd say, you're on skins. And I said, I ain't taking my shirt off out here. I don't believe it's right only people I find in the Bible that's naked was demon-possessed people. When he got right with God, he got saved. They found him clothed and in his right mind. That's right. We was on that fishing boat Friday, and, and uh, uh, Capitan, that big big uh, Aruban guy, he said, won't you jump in there and snorkel a little bit? I said, I think I will. I'm going to put on a snorkel mask and jump over in this water and see what's under there. He said, you're going gonna, to gonna do it in your clothes? You, going, you ain't going to take your clothes off? I said, no. If I took my shirt off, you'd go blind. <laughs> I said, my stomach's just as wide as the snow. I said, my, son, my my chest ain't never seen a lot of day. Y'all say, what's this got to do with the message? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. But I was surrounded by a bunch of Hawaiians that wanted me to take my shirt off, and I was raised better. And I said, I ain't taking my shirt off. They said, we've already got our five guys, and you're on their team. I said, it's my basketball we're playing with. Now, I'm going to play, but I'm going to be on the shirts team, or I'm going to the house, and I'm going to take my ball with me. And you can stick that in your pipe and smoke it. See, that's how I handle peer pressure. I just turned it around. And they said, all right, I guess you're going to be on shirts. I said, I reckon I am. I didn't have no help. I didn't have no youth group. I didn't have no youth pastor. I didn't have a bunch of kids to sit around me and encourage me to live right and do right. It was just me and God. And I didn't even think about that until last week when I was working on this message right here. And then God sent me to the backside of the desert in Africa where I couldn't get nobody to help me. I couldn't pay nobody to help me. I think about all the years I've lived By myself, trying to live for God and do what I feel like God called me to do. Hey, it wasn't really as bad as you think it is because God did a work in my heart during those times of solitude. He did a work in David. I'm trying to get back to my message. We were talking about this after church Sunday night. It just came back to me. Three things quickly I want you to notice. That God prepared this is just David. We can look at a whole bunch of Bible characters, but I don't have time tonight. We're just going to look at one. Three things God did in in preparing David during this time of, of obscurity. And it's obvious he's in obscurity from verse 13 to verse number 18. We don't know where he's at, what he's doing. But God did something. Number one, write this down. God prepared his hands. God prepared his hands. They said in verse number Sixteen. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. It shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servant, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is cunning in playing. He's cunning in playing. God had prepared his hands during a time of solitude and obscurity. Who's he playing for? Where's he playing? He's playing out in the middle of a field. He's playing to God, obviously. There ain't nobody else there. Somehow or another, this servant had heard David play. And David has now been labeled, excuse me, as cunning in playing. Because while he was alone, And while he was in solitude, God was preparing his hands. That's where he began to be the sweet, as what the Bible says, the sweet psalmist David. It began in obscurity. I love to hear our young people get over here and play these pianos during offertories. They get up here and, and they struggle and they mess up. And I don't care because I know they've been at home practicing. And if them getting up here and playing every now and then, well, encourage them to keep practicing. That's good. I like it. I learned to play the piano and nobody could hear me. I want nobody to play for. Learned to play the guitar, and go sit out in the field and learn to play the guitar. Some of the best songs I've ever written, God gave them to me when I was at work. And I wrote them on a paper towel with a pencil, stuck them in my pocket until I got home and could put a tune to them. I'm talking about what God does when you're by yourself. Are y'all getting what I'm saying? God did something in David, prepared his hands. He prepared his hands for two things. This ain't on the screen, but you can write it down. God prepared his hands for being a blessing, for being a blessing. The Bible says in verse 23 that they called David. He came, and the Bible says that he played, verse number 23, that David took a harp, played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed. God prepared his hands so that one day, One day, and he didn't know when, he had no idea when, but there came a day when all of that practicing and all that playing and all of that worshiping and all that had been done in private and in solitude, God blessed him and let him play for the king. God prepared his hands for blessing. God prepared his hands for battle. You knew I was going there. Chapter 17, we wouldn't have even known about it if Saul hadn't said, you can't go fight this giant. You're not able. And David said, well, um, I kind of am. Because you see, um, thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. He said, the last servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them. God's already prepared my hands for battle. This ain't my first rodeo, King Saul. I was out there where nobody could see me nobody could encourage me nobody could clap for me nobody could write me a note of encouragement nobody could say out a boy I was just out there doing what I was supposed to do and a bear came and a lion came and I killed him with my hands God's already prepared my hands for battle when there was nobody around to see it. David said in Psalm 144, verse number one Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teacheth my fingers to war, my hands to war, and my fingers to fight. When do you reckon God did that? When do you reckon God did that? He did it in obscurity, he did it in solitude. Somebody's phone's ringing. We see God prepared his hands, God taught him how to fight. That's why he knew he would have no trouble fighting and defeating Goliath because God had already given him victories in obscurity. God had already given him victories in times of isolation. God had already prepared his hands not only to be a blessing but also for battle. God couldn't use him to be a blessing to others until he had taken advantage of what I call solitary refinement. He took time to learn skillfully. He learned in private and in isolation. And God just let word get out. Are y'all getting this tonight? God prepared his hands. God prepared his hands. Number two, God prepared his head. Look at what it says in our text. Back in our text in chapter 16, he's cunning and playing. Mighty, valiant man, a man of war. I, I, I don't know how you get labeled a mighty, valiant man and a man of war when you had never been in a battle. But then the Bible says the next thing we see about him was that he was prudent in matters. That word prudent, if you look it up, it means to be discerning. It literally means to be intelligent, to be discreet, or to have understanding. So here he is out in the middle of a field, sitting under a tree, playing a harp, watching sheep eat grass. And God began to prepare his head so that the day would come when he could be a king and rule the nation. I mean, you have, there's no question about this had to have happened between verse 13 and verse number 18. It had to. You don't just become a prudent man, be prudent in matters without God having prepared that. We know in chapter number 18, verse number 14, the Bible says, David behaved himself wisely in all of his ways. and The Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. God had already prepared his head for the, for the opportunity in the day when he would rule the land. Verse number 30, the Bible says, I'm in, I'm in chapter 18. Y'all still with me? Verse 30, the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass after they went forth that David saved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. He's walking wisely, he's behaving wisely, he's prudent in matters. God had already begun to prepare his head. And he wrote the longest book in the Bible. Book of Psalms, got 150 chapters. He wrote most of them. When you read the book of Psalms, you see a man that did exactly what he wrote he did. He meditated on the word of God and the law of God day and night. God began to prepare his head. God began to prepare his hands. But thirdly, God prepared his heart. Look at verse 18 of chapter 16. He's cunning and playing, a mighty valiant man, a man of war, prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Boy, that's the the cherry on top, ain't it? That's the best part of that whole verse. Lord was with him. God began to prepare his heart. In chapter number 16, wait a minute, that's not right. Chapter number 15. Chapter 15. I lost my place. Give me a second. The Lord said to Samuel, "Look not on his countenance. That's chapter 16. I got the wrong verse. I found it. Verse number um, verse number seven, Look at it. I found it. Praise the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, talking about Eliab, that's the oldest, but I have refused him. The Lord seeth, not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the what? Heart. See, David had something the rest of them didn't have. He had a heart. God had already established that way back in chapter 13. Back in chapter 13 and verse number um, 14, God said, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. Talking to Saul, the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. God had prepared and God had begun working in David to prepare his heart long before anybody else knew about it. I just went to, I just got to looking at this. And I had to come to the conclusion that whatever it was about David's heart that was right and was good, according to 1 Samuel 15 28, it was better than Saul's. And it was because God was doing something. It was something God had done in him long before we we're ever introduced to him in chapter number 16. And David had a relationship with God. Hey, and it was real. It wasn't the result of peer pressure, neither. He wasn't tagging along on his brothers. Because if I may, Eliab, at least Eliab, he was an idiot. And he was a coward. Come on, y'all stood there for 40 days and listened to Goliath blaspheme God twice a day for 40 days and never once got his blood pressure up. Then David shows up, asked a few questions and he got angry at David and he wanted to insult David in front of everybody. Eliab was an idiot. So I know David wasn't walking with God because his brothers were forcing him to. He wasn't tagging along on their coattail. As far as I can tell, it was just him and God. And I just want to go on record and say this. You don't have to have a crowd to walk with God. Noah walked with God all by himself. Enoch walked with God all by himself. Job walked with God. Without a church, without a youth group, without a bunch of people around him, always trying to talk him into doing right and always trying to counsel him to do right. He had a relationship with God. That was built in obscurity, isolation, loneliness, and solitude. Chapter 18, verse 12. The Bible says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. I'm going to preach one of these days on how to make people scared of you. They will be if the Lord's with you. You better believe they will. The Bible says in uh, chapter 18, verse 14, that David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Chapter 18, verse 28, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. Over and over and over again, our Bible tells us that the Lord was with David. It tells us in chapter 16, verse number 13, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. God was doing something. God was working on David. By the way, can I just throw something at you? God had also given Saul another heart when he started with him. In chapter 10 and verse number 9, the Bible tells us when he he anointed Saul, Saul was head and shoulders taller than anybody else according to chapter 9 verse 2. The Bible tells us that the man of God came and anointed him. He was so humble. In verse 21 of chapter 9, Saul said, Am not I, Benjamite, the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought him into the parlor. about that. Look at what it says. Look at what it says in chapter 10, verse number 9. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. Whenever God wants to do something great with you, you know what he's going to prepare? Your heart. He's going to work in your heart. And in some cases, he'll just give you another one. Hmm? So what happened to Saul? Well, God gave him another heart. He was so humble. He was so meek. He was so tender. But then he got full of pride. He got full of pride. The reason why God stripped the throne away from him is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse number 16 and verse number 17. This is just a side note. Are y'all okay? Just just digging in the word a little bit. Here's Here's what God said in 1 Samuel 15, verse 16. Samuel said unto Saul, Stay and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said, Say on. He said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? You were little in your own sight. Those days are over. You got too big for your britches. You don't need the man of God anymore. You can do his job too. Told you to go down there and and, and get rid of all those, was it the Malachites, and you spared Agag. Then you lied about it. Played it off like it wasn't a big deal. He said, that's fine. I got somebody else I've been preparing their heart. He's got a heart after my own heart. And everybody thinks Eliab ought to be the next king, but see, man looks on the outward appearance, but I'm looking at his heart. I made a little list with Adriel, some proof that David's heart had been prepared by God because he remained unmoved through some extremely painful experiences. let me just watch this. He was the last man to be chosen when his family was considered for the position of king. We don't see him getting upset about that. Being the youngest, he was left to feed his father's sheep even though he would just been anointed to be king. He's like that. Anointed to be king. Now going back out, y'onder to, to watch those sheep. There he went. Falsely accused and belittled by his brother in front of the entire army in chapter 17. He was targeted for his success by King Saul and almost killed twice I've throwing javelins at him. You know what he kept doing? Behaving wisely. Run for his life, had to hide in caves. Brother Sasser, didn't we go up in one of them caves? And you say it was one of those caves David hid in when he was hiding from Saul. That was pretty awesome. Water trickling out of there. There was a pond. There was, just, I mean, clear, crystal clear water in the middle of the desert. There's the way those rocks and mountains were. He would hide up in there trying to get away from Saul. Went up in one cave called Doolum. Talk about being by yourself. 300 losers piled up in there with him. Think about it. Every single one of them, dead beats. David said, well, I reckon we'll just have to go to work. And he whipped them into an army nobody could touch. what did God do? God prepared his hands. God prepared his head. and God prepared his heart in solitude. What am I saying tonight? I'm saying this. Sometimes God will let you go through times of isolation and loneliness so that He can perform His work in you. I wonder tonight with heads bowed and eyes closed if there may be somebody who needs to get an altar.